The Tablet Show, Episode 20, with guest Paul Thorstenson. Recorded live Thursday, February 16th, 2012. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Paul Thorstenson about the business of selling mobile apps. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, guess what? What? It's the Tablet Show. Yes, sir. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here. We're talking for the next, I don't know, 45 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been a quiet week in my hometown, Lake Wogan. No, that's a different show. Hey, let's get right into Better Know Framework, Richard. Awesome. Well, what do you got? We're not wasting any time today. No, sir, Scott Hansman. No, sir. Got something WinRT for me? I do. Um, you know, I talked about the, the get type uh, on the type method that's in WinRT. Mm-hmm. But it's a or .NET four five rather, but it's a little bit different in .NET four five. There are some options here. We can pass in an assembly resolver or a type resolver. So if you have the assembly name, you can use that to get the type. And if you just have the type name, you can use that as well. Nice. So uh, two different ways to get uh, to get a, a type object from get type in .NET four five. It's good. It's cool. Learn it, know it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed an email from uh, Richard Gar's side, and he's talking about the tablet show. He says, uh, hi, Richard and Carl. Let's not talk about the order here. Uh, really enjoying the new show, but having to go on lots of long walks so I can listen and keep up with all the new content you're producing. Yeah. I've watched the Windows 8 demos, and the thing that excites me the most is the App Store. I'm hoping to start my own ISV business, and I think both the discoverability and customer trust around payments will be much higher through the App Store than my own website. The app I have in mind is a utility app. It would be perfect for Metro, but I can also imagine users wanting to have it on the screen at the same time as other apps, so it may be a desktop app as well. Hmm. From what I've seen of desktop mode versus Metro mode, it seems to be completely separate, and you have to choose one or the other. Is there a way to show a split panel view of Metro on one side of the screen and desktop mode on the other half of the screen? Now you're just asking for trouble. I know the answer to this. <laughs> the answer is yes. They showed it. They didn't show it at Build. At Build, you couldn't do it, but they showed it at the CES keynote, and they never said anything when they did it. Hmm. You weren't paying attention at that keynote. You didn't realize that she pulled up of the desktop screen and then dragged in a Metro screen on the other half. Hmm. So they're, you know, obviously they're further along. And I think by the time this show is published, the, the consumer preview will be out. So I bet you will have that capability. But yes, you can do that. If you can't figure it out, there's always remote desktop, right? Yeah, there's always a way. There's always a way. There needs to be some sort of story about how these two modes integrate with each other. I agree. Mm. Uh, Just being able to view one or the other seems clunky. And it's my only concern about Windows 8. Everything else looks fantastic. Cool. All the best, Richard Garside, a web developer and designer out of the UK. And uh, Richard, a tablet show mug, a very rare, very precious tablet yes. show mug is on its way to you. And a .NET Rocks mug, because apparently we forgot to send you a .NET Rocks mug before. So I'll send you one of each. And if you'd like a mug, send us an email, .NET Rocks at franklins.net. 
And that brings us to our guest, Paul Thorsteinson. He is the CTO of Robots and Pencils. He's a partner at Big Nerds in Disguise. And uh, his own company, App Empire Incorporated, released Books Timer for the Mac App Store. He's the co-founder of Anthem, that's A-N-T-H-M app.com. He has over 10 apps in the iOS App Store and about 10 deployed in enterprises. He's an MCTS and .NET 3.5 and SQL Server. Before that, he worked at a large accounting firm for seven years. He's currently working with clients like Warner Brothers, DC Comics, the History Channel, HDNet, and Dancing with the Stars. This is a man of many talents and accomplishments. Welcome, Paul. Hey, guys. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. You owe me money. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, Do you have bad. any idea, any idea how much I've spent in data on Own This uh. World? <laughs> You have no idea how much I'm talking about here. Yeah, if, if you're going to be playing on this world, you need to roll out with at least a, a six gig plan, I would say, monthly. Yeah, just try and find plans like that that work in lots of different countries. Oh, yeah. Because I think right now I've got squares in 30 countries. <laughs> wow, yeah, I know. I went. I even just went down to the States and I bought a prepaid plan that was like 10 megabytes and I went around San Francisco, and I think in a couple minutes I had used it. I obviously <laughs> wasn't just on this world, but... Uh, so, I guess we better explain, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. How do you describe this dumb game? <laughs> <laughs> well, I typically avoid the word dumb, but... Uh, <laughs> That's because you don't lose, right? Rich is like, this is a stupid game. That's why I play it obsessively. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if I'm feeling down in the game, I just head into the beta world, and then I take over a bunch of territories with an SQL statement, and I feel great. Ah, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, but I, I guess, I guess my our our pitch that we put across is is basically um, trying to capture the feel of a war game like Risk that you typically play in a board game or a map but yeah. making it real. So all of a sudden, instead of being like, "Hey, I'm moving from Australia to," Uh, Asia or whatever you're going. I'm moving from scenic acres in northwest Calgary to Silver Springs in northwest Calgary, and I'm going to take that territory over. And, you know, I'm going to try and capture my corner of the world, northwest Calgary, and then I'm going to try and capture all of Calgary, and then Alberta, and then Canada, and then I'm going to be emperor of the world. And maybe everybody won't know it, but I'll yeah. know it. Well, what's, what's interesting about this, Paul, is that your, your field of play is the world. Yeah. You know, you, you have an endless supply of data points there, m managing to bring the geography into the game as a, as a prominent player. Yeah, exactly. And it, it was an interesting process actually putting together the game because I, uh, was not an awesome, uh, a geography before, and not that I am now, but I certainly learned a lot about latitude, longitude, and and different parts about it. And it it does work out to be the way that we split the game up. It works out to be two hundred and seven million three hundred sixty thousand possible territories that you can take over. Oh man! Um, so, which is interesting too, because obviously uh, there's a there's a Earth world, and then there's an Earth world for people who don't want to play in a world where you can purchase resources, and then you can mm. also create your own private worlds if you just want to play with a couple friends, uh, etc. And for every one of those worlds, there's 207 million data points. So that kind of drives, like, uh, on the back end, our data growth and whatnot is all driven on those points. So every time 
somebody goes to a new barren area, it uh, adds an extra kind of row in our database and, and that begins to grow. But um, So, yeah, there's 207 million territories that you can possibly take over and uh, you go around the world and you can nuke people, which is always very satisfying. You can salt the earth just like they did with the, the Romans did with Carthage back in the day and make sure that nothing grows again. Um, so, yeah, it all evolved out of an idea of... Uh, I think the original concept was that you would, as a person, would be going about the world and you'd have a certain radius that as you moved, it would take over this circular radius. And as you grew in power, your circle would grow. And and we quickly realized, well, that's very challenging to keep, you know, track of many people's, um, like, uh, perimeters with circles and where everything intersects. So we moved to the block blockway mm-hmm. and uh, then we kind of experimented with different size of blocks and and how big they should be and we we generally ended up coming up with uh it's not an exact um like size of blocks it's about roughly one and a half kilometers or something well paul you've obviously been very successful with your games and, and your enterprises here what was your first break into this world and how did it go well it was definitely on this world and uh, it's interesting. You, you can look at it in two slices. One is career-wise and one is financially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say one is a super success and one is a super, well, not a super failure, but it's definitely not a success. So what happened is uh, a couple of years ago, I guess, uh, shortly after the iPhone came out, I thought, you know, that's kind of interesting. So uh, myself and two other guys who are both developers decided, you know, let's try something and uh, and get this. And of course, uh, as .NET developers, we're sitting there going, oh, crap, you need a, a Mac. You know? it's like, yeah. That's interesting. I don't have a Mac. <laughs> and uh, so we actually ended up getting refurbished Mac minis, which was the cheapest option at about $450. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that was the cheapest way. I mean, otherwise, people were kind of saying you could go with a Hackintosh, but it had lots of little drawbacks, and right. and you didn't want to suffer through pain points. You know, so we went with the refurbished Mac Mini, and then we we built a game which was basically, or not a game, it was actually an app where you took a photo of a person and then a character who I won't reveal uh, due to controversy <laughs> come out and rate the character and say a little comment. So it was just kind of a, a novelty app, and we got totally rejected on that. It was just too controversial. Uh, <laughs> after that, okay. uh, but by that time, I thought of own this world and and uh, talked to the guys about doing it. So we started. Uh, working on that, and we kind of, since we were still working on our full-time jobs, we every lunch hour, we just go to my office, use uh, Log Me In, which is like remote desktop, mm-hmm. and it works, it's free and works well with Macs. So we'd use Log Me In, and we'd log in remotely, and we'd code through the lunch. And uh, then at nighttime, maybe from like say 10 to 11 p.m., we'd put in a little extra time, so we'd get about 15 to 20 hours a week coding on that. And uh, so. Through that, Own This World kind of came about, and uh, we actually didn't even own an iPhone or an iPod or anything when we first started, so we were all strictly doing it on the simulator. I think about a month before the release, I finally bought a used iPod for like $120. We actually had a device finally to test, and um, so we did that, and then we we realized quickly, too, that programmer art just isn't quite sufficient, Uh, so we teamed up with... um, Assist, one of my sister's friends, Kevin Brennan, who then came on board and became our graphic designer. 
So we launched that, and throughout two years, I would say financially, I mean, when you take the the amount that it costs per server, uh, like to run the server, which uh, we're currently using Media Temple for, and then, of course, the cost of incorporating your company and having an accountant do your books, at the end of the year, um, we're not very much further ahead. In fact, our Windows Phone 7 dev has done better than us in the sense that we just say, hey, you'll get 50% of all proceeds from Windows Phone 7, but you don't have to worry about expenses. So he's actually got cash out of it, whereas we, we have a bit in the bank, but it's not enough to really even be worth uh, spreading amongst us. So really, the, the three of us that started on the iOS version actually haven't taken out any money whatsoever from Onus World. Um, so I would say server costs and all that are just a little bit below how much we earn, most of which is through in-app purchases as opposed to actual sales of the app at 99 cents. I, I like the honesty of Own This World in the sense that you actually show how many players there are, and I think at it, this time there's like 12,000. Yeah. So, so presumably they've each paid their 99 cents to play the game, but that's not going to pay your server bills for very long. So you think that it's a it's a good... It worked out for you, though, having one uh, very popular thing that... You're just breaking, barely breaking even on, and that opens up doors to do the next thing? Yeah, I mean, it opened a ton of doors for me because before, you know, as a .NET developer, there's there's a large a larger world of established folks in the .NET community, and um, it's, it, it's great for learning, and it's hard to actually, like, break out and do something special there. I guess they're notable because it's, it's much more mature, and people have kind of done a lot of the cool things. Uh, and cool products that could be done, whereas iOS is a lot newer, so it, it feels like it's easier and there's more opportunities to do something worthwhile, like whether it be making a component or an app that hasn't been done. And in particular, by releasing that, um, you know, got the attention of uh, some people, and that's how I ended up working at Robots and Pencils, which was really beneficial because I went from, you know, being a cubicle worker downtown, which, I mean, I really enjoyed where I worked and whatnot, but this gave me the opportunity to then start my own company and work as a, as a contractor and work with robots and pencils and actually work from home, uh, make more money, have more freedom, and have the ability to also kind of spin off new products. So you mentioned robots and pencils. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Robots and Pencils is founded by Michael Sikorsky, who uh, actually sold his very first company, Servidium, to ThoughtWorks, which was a company at the time that I was actually quite interested in working at. seemed like they had uh, a lot of really high-profile devs that uh, I could learn a lot from. So I ran into Michael, and he kind of told me about uh, what he was doing with Robots and Pencils and said, you know, hey, we're looking for developers. So... That was roughly about two years ago, and I started working with them. And uh, you know, Michael is the type of guy who, if you if you do well, he puts his confidence behind you and and, and supports you. So, with robots and pencils, over the past two years, we started working with you know smaller clients, uh, most that were trying to put out like an app in the app store that was their own, and and kind of try and ride that success. And then throughout the past two years, we've seen a significant shift. Uh, to move where enterprises are starting to kind of come in and say, hey, we, we, we'd like to dabble in this. We've got, you know, 500 iPads that we just bought for enterprise and we're wondering if, you know, we can 
put some of our company forms on there, for example, and have them speak to a, a web backend. So um, that's what we've kind of seen with, with robots and pencils. Also, uh, we've seen a lot of big-name companies come along, too. Um, recently started working with uh, the History Channel. We did a Hidden Cities app for them. Uh, we have a branch in Asia that uh, lined that up. And uh, probably our most exciting one that we recently got, well, we, we lined up a year ago to do, uh, if you guys, I don't know if you remember on Commodore 64, I think they also had it on one of the original Apple uh, machines as well, and Atari, they did Spy vs. Spy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was a, a classic game I loved as a kid. I used to remember playing my dad all the time running around the embassy setting traps. So about a year ago, I contacted uh, First Star Software, who made that original game, and said, look, you know, I'd, I'd love to do this. And it just so happened that he still, Richard uh, Spitalny, who's the founder of First Star Software, still had a good contact at Warner Brothers, who was able to put us in, in touch with Warner Brothers. And uh, then then ensued, of course, the, the contract negotiations, which can take quite a bit of time with a company that size. And uh, we've been developing Spy vs. Spy for about the past two months, and that should be due out in Q1. So, so is it is it much different from the original? I mean, it's obviously in terms of graphics, but in terms of the uh, the you know what you do in the game. No, not really. Uh, the only adjustments have been obviously the graphics, but we we even there allow uh, the ability to choose between a classic mode and the current mode. And the gameplay is the same, other than obviously also the joysticks not there, and now you're moving by touch. But we've tried to stay as true as possible to the gameplay because, um, you know, it was what made the game popular was the game mechanics. So we tried not to to vary too far from that, other than adding additional things on top of it. Like now you can do a campaign mode, for example, so which wasn't in the original one. So it doesn't really detract from the original gameplay, but kind of builds on it. And is that going to be for iPhone? Yeah, exactly. So uh, first one will be iPhone and iPad, but we also have uh, the exclusive rights to all mobile. So our next target after that will probably be Android. Mm-hmm. And then uh, hopefully as well, we'd like to do the Windows phone, but that would probably be about a third in line. And in, and this is about numbers of um, devices, the, your order? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not just number of devices because... Uh, Android would actually probably beat iPhone in terms of number of devices, but sure. more so the 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 profitability of uh, different app stores. So, um, you know, not to say that uh, necessarily going in the iPhone store means or the iPhone app store means that you're going to be profitable. But um, we found, and I think other developers too, have kind of said, you know, that it's just not as popular yet in Android. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and and sounds like the Android app stores had some issues as well. Although we've had folks on the show that have been very successful with Android. Yeah, and, and it's no doubt that you can be successful with Android for sure. Um, I've heard, I know, uh, just from our own experience. So we released an add-on for the super popular indie game Minecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, we released World Explorer for Minecraft, which was, which has been our most popular app thus far. Basically, just allows you to take your Minecraft game. Stick it on your iPad so you can continue building while you're, um, you know, sitting there on the train or whatever. So it's oh, it's cool. an add-on, and uh, and that's done. That's basically been our most popular app. It was the number four to- uh, top-grossing app in the App Store when it first came out, which nice. uh, is the highest we've ever seen any of our apps go. And it's very. I realize now how challenging it is to get up that high too. Yeah. 
there's actually a, a Calgary company called Mobile Vivo, and uh, that's led by uh, Trevor Dirksen, I believe, and a couple other guys. They have uh, a lot of large contracts with uh, some fairly big producers. That's cool. I mean, it's very rare we get to talk to somebody who's sort of bridged that gap between traditional cable media and, you know, web content and especially uh, phone mobile content. So those are two entirely different worlds. How how do you find um, relating to people in that world? Well, I, I think you're you're right there. It is a, a really different world, and they don't often converge. But um, I find it's interesting. I think that things move a little bit slower. Uh, I think that's probably any time you hit a larger corporation. But, I mean, they obviously don't make a lot of impulse decisions. There's a lot of thought. There's a lot of marketing behind it. And uh, so I find that things do move a little bit slower, especially notice – you know, like obviously Warner Brothers, they're they're not going to jump into something without making sure that their intellectual property is preserved and that right. they haven't, you know, uh, given away rights that they didn't want to. Uh, so it's a little bit slower right. for sure. Um, but it's interesting. I think it's an area that's going to grow. Like Disney, I noticed they recently uh, launched a line of like second screen products with iPad. Right. So. You know, I think that people have always longed to interact with their TV, but mm-hmm. their, the TV was never built for that. So I think that's where this technology comes in. Now the iPad, or, you know, even if it's on iPad, you know, maybe it's a Galaxy tablet yeah. or whatnot, but uh, you're, you're sitting there and that becomes your interactive part. And, of course, the TV uh, the network can then feed those numbers on through onto the actual TV as well. It's really interesting that sometimes you wonder if your request for pay-per-view gets through. I mean, how how does the cable company embrace, you know, internet traffic combining with their I mean, you know, we have cable modems in our houses and things like that, but but typically getting the two thing two systems working together is is very difficult. Yeah, I, and I think that that's going to be a growing challenge. So I don't I would imagine and it looks like that the Originally, the second screen stuff is all going to be separate from the TV. I don't think you're necessarily going to see activities from your second screen showing up on the actual TV. Right. I mean, the day we actually have a live live tweets and stuff on TV that, you know, you know, you don't even see that very often. No, you don't. And, and even the, the tweets that you see on there, you got to think are usually filtered and time delayed. Uh, so they've kind of been pre-processed, um, and I, I don't know that they'll ever necessarily say allow live tweets, but they'll probably like to get somewhere close where they have some, you know, somebody quickly approving and disapproving of them. But uh, it's yeah, I think it's very very interesting how that's going to come about. Uh, to note on that, I also wonder how many people are going to use Apple TV, and I don't think that it's quite caught on the way that it will, but I mm-hmm. think as soon as somebody lights a match, um, most interesting thing I saw last year at all at WWDC, the Apple Developer Conference, was some of the apps that worked with AirPlay. So for those that don't know, AirPlay allows you to wirelessly stream content from your iPad or from your iPhone uh, through to your Apple TV. So an Apple TV sets you back about $120 Canadian at least. And, uh, you can, you can basically develop and as you're developing, you have this other window and you can start putting content to it. So, uh, as an example, um, 
last year for one of our promos, we had a iPad and a, a pub, and people could come and play this game. And the scoreboard was actually being controlled by the iPad on this TV, but people could come and interact with the iPad, and it would in turn interact with the TV screen. And one of the coolest demos I saw at the, the Apple Developer Conference was, uh, I think it was Fire, Fireman's Real Racing. And they basically use the iPad, like they launch the game on the iPad, it streams through the Apple TV onto the TV, they use the iPad as a steering wheel, and on the iPad it presents uh, a secondary display, so you see track data and where everybody is on the track. Wow. The actual race is taking place on the TV. That's cool. And yeah, it's super cool because it changes the iPad or any tablets that follow to be more than just an i like an iPad. Well, oh, I'm going to use this and I'm out and about. It actually turns it into a console, and the graphics on the r- the real racing game were amazing. Like it wasn't quite say Xbox 360 level, but it was definitely above Wii. So I just think that that hasn't caught on a lot. I don't think there's been a lot of uptake in the Apple TV, but I think it's going to take those one or two games for people to just hear that this is actually possible. And I think that'll really take off. Well, I mean, I don't think the thinking around Apple TV is focused on games yet. I think folks are just looking at it and going, how is this better than what I can currently get on TV? Exactly. Yeah. I think it blows people away when I tell them that, no, you can actually use this as like a console. And then you have this and they're like, I, they don't get it until I actually put it on the screen. There was another game. I think it's modern warfare, uh, which is a shooter, which I don't think worked as nicely as the racing game did, but you could do the same thing. And it's got like maps of the, the level that you're playing on the iPad and of course, on the actual TV screen is where the fight's occurring. And I, so I think it takes, it's going to take some game to be fairly popular on that. It's kind of like where other people come over to your house and go, whoa, I need one of those. I've always wanted to be able to use my tablet to control my TV, not just like a remote, but being able to go through the guide data on the tablet rather than looking at the big screen and saying, okay, no, that's the show I want to look. At, or this is the show, you know, in my repository of movies I want to play, and then it shows up on the big screen. Like, make that an extension of the big screen. Exactly, yeah. And I, I think now that uh, a lot of companies are introducing the second screen uh, with the iPad, or I haven't seen it with Galaxy, but I m- imagine uh, the tablet there, Android tablet, must have something similar. But I think, you know, it's just going to be a matter of time, one year, two years, before people realize that there's this link between their TV with some of the systems out there, and it really takes off. This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now 
and take full advantage of the available free-of-charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting The Tablet Show. You know, I want to jump back a little bit to the mobile side of these things, because you talked about uh, how your Minecraft app took off in the App Store. And this is an App Store with, what, a half a million apps in it now? Yeah. And how do you how do you get to the top ten? Like, was it a marketing campaign? Like, what did it for you? Mm. Well, Minecraft is actually it's one of those phenomenons that you actually don't even need marketing for. It's right. A, um, so, Michael, one of his things is that you know, like, innovation is great, but it's not necessarily what people want. I think a great uh, showcase of that is to show I think Own This World is very innovative. Mm-hmm. There are not many games out there like it. There are certainly a couple that are like it. Some came after, and not many were there before. We haven't made a ton of money on it. Minecraft is some go, you know what? We don't even have to make Minecraft. Like, Notch is fairly open at uh, his game, having people building on it and whatnot. So he's like, let's take Minecraft and allow people to take it on the road. Of course, the core game, you still have to be playing normal Minecraft. So it facilitates that. And so he just said, let's build this. I think it'll do well. And lo and behold, that was exactly what happened. Um, if you search for Minecraft, uh, or at least the time when we released, there was a couple of reference guides in there, and they were doing well on their own. So we put in Minecraft, and I think just the sheer drive of people looking for Minecraft in the App Store, not finding it, and this is the only app that shows up that is actually like a playable version that you can actually build on. That has any relationship to Minecraft at all. Yeah, it's not the actual Minecraft game. It just allows you to continue building, like, and, but it doesn't have like creepers like Minecraft does. Right. It just basically go and it has, you know, 90% of the blocks that the original Minecraft has. So you can kind of keep building, but there was absolutely no marketing done with it. It was just basically launched on the success just of people searching desperately for Minecraft. Yeah, you know, interesting point, a way to, you know, find an app is to go look for unfulfilled search terms. Yeah, yeah, and on that note, I've really noticed lately that people are actually naming their companies uh, to promote, like, SEO through the App Store, because, you know, everybody knows that, well, not everybody, I guess, but it's fairly wide open what the tricks are to, you know, get yourself up in Google or Bing and whatnot. There's certain tricks you can do, but in the App Store, you know, their, well, their algorithm for searching is locked down to no different than Google or Bing. You know, they try and keep yeah. that secret, but it's not as well known. So I've actually seen people starting to name their companies with terms that would be searched. So it's a kind of a nonsensical company name. Right. We've, we've talked about this in the past too, that, you know, naming something uh, generically is just terrible because nobody can find you in the search engine. We like to have words that don't exist yet. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're going to market. Ext- I mean, it's a, there's an upside to being a unique name so that when they do search on that name, they can find you. But now yeah. you have to market that name so that people know it. Right. Yeah. And so with with something like Minecraft, um, it just, I, I think not last summer they were selling... I think they set a record or something of their own where they sold like $350,000 in a day for an indie game maker. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's just unbelievable. So, the, and it wasn't like, at least not to, like, I couldn't see that they were actively doing any major marketing. So it's just a word of mouth thing. And I think that's how Minecraft, uh, the add on that we did, the World Explorer, took off. Since then, I mean, I've certainly been a part of, 
numerous different campaigns and attempts to get the apps up in the app store. And there's lots of different ways people use, like Tapjoy is like an incentivized install. So like they can get people to, you know, say, hey, you like playing this game and uh, you can get a 100 coins for this game instead of paying 99 cents. Just go buy this other game and you'll get your coins. So they have an incentivized uh, system, which works okay. And then there's things like AdMob and AdWorld and and all that. Uh, we've also tried Facebook advertising and a lot of advertising, like Facebook advertising for apps anyways, I find to be pretty insignificant. I've mm-hmm. used Google AdSense, uh, again, not with much uh, luck there. So I, I think what people don't realize is it's actually extremely hard to get into that top 25. Like if you're just launching something into the void, that's like new and you think it's an idea that will do well, you need it's no reason to abandon good like business sense and traditional marketing. Yeah, to I've, I've always said that just because you have a web page doesn't mean people are going to find it or come to it. Uh, traditional marketing is necessary, and that's I think where you know comp you know these cable TV companies and traditional media really has a place. Um, they the they get eyeballs to your yeah. website, but the problem is that of course once people get to the website what used we have less use for the the cable channels because they're just less fun to use yeah that's a problem for them i think But they do have an audience so if we can actually deliver them something they want true yep it's interesting because if you're going into the app store and you have no existing business um and you have no way to reach out you're it's just you know a pebble in the water you have your little ripple and then you have a calm calm like and I think with Own This World, like, we don't really do any marketing. Um, and so it's mostly been word of mouth. And the, the surges we have seen have been really obscure things. We, we did, you know, write to a couple bloggers and whatnot. And we got a pretty good surge when we got on, uh, GeekDad on Wired.com. Uh, that helped fairly. But then we've had really odd ones like uh, the Russia, the bronies, as I call them. It, so bronies are people who, like who are adults, but like to show My Little Ponies, and uh, oh, I've heard about this. This is a yeah. crazy group of people. I mean, yeah, no offense, but come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I haven't watched the show. My daughters would probably like it, so I could probably sit down. But apparently, they say for a kids' show, the writing is stunning. But anyways, one day we noticed uh, that our sales, which on average for actual sales of the app, would be between five to ten a day. Um, but one day they jumped up to like 65 with no reason or rhyme. And it turned out that the Bronies have a website and they had to, one of them had discovered on this world and was trying to get everyone else. So all of a sudden all these other Bronies picked it up and they started an alliance and, and took off. <laughs> so, yeah. So for a while, my little pony, the Bronies were ravaging on this world. Wow. Crazy. It's very strange. So, so you would say that your your success comes from a just a combination of getting hitting that market with own this world and getting eyeballs on it, and then uh, forging relationships with with other companies that help to promote the rest of the stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, like I think um, you know, it, there's certainly ways, like uh, for example, Tapjoy and AdMob to get people to download your app, and then. Whether they stay or not is going to be based on quality. But I think in the long run, uh, if your if your game or your app is decent, you will get some slow growth over over time from word of mouth. But 
Um, but it is tough if if you have no existing business. Like for example, History Channel, they launch an app. Um, you know, they already have a strong brand. They already have a people go to see their TV shows, so that's their primary thing, and they can spin off growth through the app. Right. Or if EA launches a game, all their other games can advertise that game. So they have a way to actually drive growth. But I think there's a lot of games that are just dropping into the app store um, and don't have anything else to drive drive those sales. I think Own This World is a good example. I think like, we've proven that you know it's a fairly decent game. You either like it or you don't. Um, but it's hard to drive those sales without there being any other existing popularity or for own this world and it was your first game you started from scratch there essentially yeah that was totally from scratch game design everything in fact uh, at the time we didn't uh, the those of us who started developing on it had never really written a web back in like uh in my past life i was a sql server dba and a dotnet winform developer so that was where my expertise lay so i was learning learning ios and like in retrospect looking at the code base uh, we've been cleaning it up in subsequent releases, but it's out of all the code bases I have for iOS, it's probably the worst. Yeah, well, it's like the first clutch in your first car, right? You don't go anywhere and you make some bad yeah. smells. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's a great analogy. And and that's the way it is. Although, uh, I guess the, the good thing is it's one of those cases, too, where it shows that it's good to not fret about the details too much and actually release because I think yeah. that a lot of people... They go, and I've, I've certainly done it where I've built software and maybe I've made it 75%, but I never released because I was worried, ah, no, I still got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do this. And, and at some point you have to actually say, you know what, what we have is good enough. Let's cut it out and we can keep working on it. Mm. Well, I really got the sense that you did that with the phone seven edition because I came on board as a player for phone seven and the very, the first versions were just a portion of the functionality of the iPhone edition. Exactly, yeah. You got it out the door and, and let it grow uh, with people using it. Yeah, and you know what? The the bottom line is you, you may get complaints, but you're going to find out what is the most important thing to do next. So, you know, when, when, they release, when we released the Windows Phone version, um, you know, people immediately would say, oh, it's not fair because of this. And you go, okay, well, 50 people are saying it's not fair of this, and five people are saying that they want this which is really turning what we were thinking on our heads right. because we're going, here's what we're going to do, this, 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 and this, then we release it. And then you find out really quickly, oh, no, actually, they really want this more. And then we actually add that. And I also think that from a end user point of view, it's really nice uh, to say, hey, I think this isn't right and I want this next and actually have somebody email you back and go, yeah, you're right. And there we go. We implemented it for you. So I think when we release our Android version, it will probably be a little further ahead than was than the Windows Phone 7 version was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it won't be totally caught up to the iPhone either. And and that's been a problem too. Like, do you continue releasing features on the iPhone, or do you pause and let the other two catch up? Well, and I got to imagine the bulk of your customer base is on the iPhone. You've got to keep them fed. Yes, we do, and, and that leads to the other challenge. So. This, uh, for us in particular, um, you know, at 99 cents for the amount of users we have versus the cost that I talked about before, um, before when we, when we first launched it, it was, uh, created lunch hour and maybe in the evening or on the weekends when we had time. 
And that hasn't really changed because it just doesn't, it can't, it doesn't afford the ability to go off and do extra things. So we get a ton of great suggestions from users and we're, we have to kind of sit there and go, I like, you want to do it because we love the game and we love that other people love the game, but you're always constantly going, Oh, did I take a day off to do this and lose actual income? Yeah. Uh, versus, so I think people are sometimes surprised like, Oh, why aren't you doing this and this and this? And it's, it's like, yes, I, I know, I know we want to do that, and, but it takes a lot more time when, uh, you know, there's not a lot of money. And right. you had mentioned earlier an interesting point. You said, you know, we have 12,000 users and we're upfront about that and we put it on our site. But the thing that, the fact of the matter is actually most of those people didn't pay for the app. We, oh. uh, yeah, we encountered two great surges in our, uh, in our user base. And the first one came when we were at 800 users. So we had had 800 users for almost a, or we built up to about 800 users for almost a year. Then all of a sudden just started rocketing, driving in the car and taking over some territories. I thought, That's weird. I swore just a minute ago, there was like 850. Now it says 870. I'm like, mm, must've been wrong. Then like a couple minutes later, I'm like, what? 895. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it kept going like that. And so, you know, started digging in the database and, and poking around the net. And well, lo and behold, it had been cracked. Now, Whoa. luckily, when, when we released our first couple versions, we had some software in there that was anti-piracy and it worked fairly good. But as soon as uh, it's kind of one of those things, like it works good until somebody's smart enough and determined enough to make it free. And that's basically what happened. So we were at about 800 users, cracked it. And then of course that shows up on all the cracked sites. And I think within three or four days, we were at 4,000 users. Oh. And then uh, something similar happened. I think we put out an update and then uh, a couple days later, somebody cracked it and boom, we went from like 4,000, like 8,000. Wow. So our two biggest growths have been through cracking, which it's interesting because I also, we flag users that are cracked versus not, and we would actually consider banning them, except for the fact that the software that's flagging them is not 100% accurate. So we've had to kind of measure against that, but we've said, okay, let's look at all of the users that joined in this time period where we know that the crack was prominent, and let's measure and see if these users turn around and maybe start doing in-app purchases, because maybe then it'll be worth it. So what happened? And uh, it turned out not a large amount of them were actually turning around doing in-app purchases. So it, it, well, it was interesting. It was, it was good and it was bad. It was good, uh, in the sense that after that, the amount of word of mouth spread. So our actual legitimate purchases increased like by three times. So we went from selling like two or three a day to all of a sudden we're like 12 to 15. Hmm. And I think. I, in my head, I rationalize that as that some people maybe download a cracked version of the game, and then if they like it, they go, okay, I'll actually buy it. So I think there's a it's little a bit buck. of buy and buy. Yeah, I know, and that's the crazy thing. I, To me, <laughs> yeah. You drop it, five it bucks is. on a latte, you could buy a game. <laughs> I think a lot of hackers do it for the challenge. The ones that I've talked to anyway, they they just like the challenge of being able to crack it bragging yeah. rights, you know. 
Yeah, and it's it's weird because I could kind of see before, you know, like some people might uh, do like an Xbox game or something. Like, okay, it's $50, you want to try it. Not that you couldn't rent it at a video game store, but... Um, but I mean, yeah, it's, it blows me away that it even continues at 99 cents. What's even more confusing is the people that have cracked the game and then send in support requests. <laughs> like, you didn't even pay a buck for the game. You got some big ones. And now you're complaining about this or that not being done. Uh, in fact, uh, a funny email today about World Explorer for Minecraft I had a support come in just this morning. And I was having a chuckle about when it first launched, it was four ninety nine over a year ago. Um, and the nice thing about uh, Apple stores compared to Android is you don't have to handle refunds and whatnot. Uh, but this, uh, so we always say, you know, if you want a refund for the game, you have to go ask Apple for it, and Apple handles that. So that's one of the benefits of paying them 30%. But uh, this particular fellow, he he emailed in today and said, you know, I bought the game in January of 2011, so over a year ago. It was four ninety nine. And since then, it's gotten slower and crashier. Hmm. Like, okay, that's interesting. And, and you know, on some of the older devices, uh, like an iPod 2G or definitely an I, first-gen iPod, which we actually say we don't recommend you get in the description, um, it, it can be slow. But anyways, this guy had it for a full year and only now decided to ask for a refund on a 499 app. It was like right. being like, I bought a Big Mac combo a year ago, <laughs> and I froze it, and I was eating it through the year, and uh, it's tasting worse and worse every time I unthaw it. Like, well, <laughs> you, well, yeah. You lose your legitimacy after waiting a year. That means you enjoyed the game for a year, or you are frustrated by it, but for a whole year, you didn't say a word, and now you yeah. turn around and you want your money back, and, and I don't know, I'm kind of hope in that case that Apple doesn't, but it, it does go to show. And I, I know when we first launched uh, On This World, it was uh, we had put it down to 99 cents and somebody bought it and they were upset about something. I can't remember what it was. It was fairly minor, but they said, I want my dollar back. Huh. And uh, I knew he was a Calgary guy. So I'm like, you know what? If you want your dollar back, I'm like, sweet 700 on 4th Avenue, come on down. I'll give you a dollar back. And he uh-huh. kind of set up, but <laughs> but I mean, it is surprising because when you do compare the relative cost of an app to a latte at Starbucks yeah. or even, you know, at Tim Hortons or wherever, it's, you, you might have a crappy coffee. Half the time when I get coffee, they screw up the amount of cream of sugar and it's like, well, whatever, I'll just drink it. But right. with an app, um, yeah. it's surprising. I, I'm personally happy that a lot of the games that I love, I can buy for 99 cents. Like, even if I don't like it. It's like whatever. Paul, let me ask you one more question here. What uh, you, you said in your in your list of talents that uh, you have some Ruby on Rails experience. How um, how has that um, come into play with all of your uh, with all the things that we've been talking about here? What what do you like about Ruby? Uh, well, I, what I like about it is, it, uh, in particular, Ruby on Rails is the way that they've laid out the framework, like. It's, you know, it's very, it just makes sense to the way that I think. The way that you would expect things to behave is the way that it seems to fall out. And now maybe that's just because my mindset works well with that. But uh, to give you a bit of background, when we made On This World, like we were just like, hey, what should we make this in? Somebody said PHP for these reasons. So we did it in PHP. And having uh, used Ruby on Rails, I think that it's just set up 
as it's advertised to get up and running a lot quicker than a lot of the other frameworks. Um, yeah. The other thing that I like about it, and at Robots and Pencils, we made the choice in particular uh, for anything that we were doing backends would be Ruby on Rails uh, sitting on a Heroku server. Heroku is really nice. It can be expensive at times. But the way they set it up is super simple. You just basically, you want to push, you just basically do a git commit to their server, and then it runs. And if all of a sudden you see a traffic spike, uh, so a good example of an app where it's awesome is our Anthem app is a app that basically allows you to host music parties. So it's going to be bigger on Friday and Saturday than cool. it will be on, you know, Sunday through Monday, right? So with Heroku, you can raise up the amount of dynos which is basically the amount of requests you can process per second. You could raise it up for two days, and then you can pull it back down because you know it's quiet on the weekend. So I really love that, like the the way that they virtualized it and how they have their cloud provider works. I, I think it's great. I like Ruby on Rails. Like I like the language Ruby. It's very elegant. It does a lot of the things that you could do in .NET, but in a way that I think is syntactically nicer. Um, one common complaint might be that Ruby is a little bit slower, but right. um, I haven't really come up against that being an issue yet. I think the other thing that I would say that I like about it is that, that it generally, since they run, you know, you can run it on Linux, it's generally a lot cheaper. Uh, when we first started developing backends in the web, my first thought was to go, well, I want a SQL server. I want, you know, ASP.net on it, but you go look. 25 grand for a license, man. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, and actually it was pointed out to me at, at Prairie DevCon that, you know, oh, for startups that you have a special program. Well, that's great. But if, if no, if it's not widely known, nobody's going to use it. But I know I could turn around, get Ruby on Rails, use Heroku and be up there for zero dollars. And right. then as soon as people start using it, and then I'm going to pay money. And I think that's an area that um, Microsoft needs to capitalize in a more known way. Like, coming out of there, I would have loved to use .NET because that's what I knew. Like, I but just you didn't know about BizSpark. BizMark? Yeah, BizSpark is that is that program. Right. And that's what I, yeah, that's what I found out about, uh, I think, uh, in November. So, right. like, two or three years too late. Um, <laughs> and so I think they need to capitalize on that because we definitely would have went the .NET road. And so I think that's interesting. And when I was at that conference, it was making me think, like, this is a problem that Microsoft needs to solve. Like, why is BizSpark not widely known? I think if I was still at Myers Norris Penny, I would have known about it because, you know, I was MCTS and I got all the swag. But the people that need Biz, BizSpark are probably not people who are sitting there and they have an enterprise license of this and that and go, oh, I, I know that if I ever spin out of here, I can go into that. Uh, and so that kind of led to why we tried other alternatives like PHP and then um, got into the Ruby on Rails world. And that I, I found was really accessible, super easy to throw up uh, and a site with nice, clear routing and handling, you know, has a good separation uh, with MVC, which... Uh, ASP.NET does too, but I also noticed um, that, you know, comparing versus ASP.NET, it seemed like they were having a lot of trouble with, um, like, add-ons, whereas mm. Ruby has that nice gem system, and that to me is super appealing too. 
Well, uh, I think that's a show, Paul. Thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And keep in touch and let us know about what happens from here on. Will do. Sounds good. Thanks for for the chat, guys. Appreciate it. All right, Paul. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. It's not too much, but it means a lot. Just try and it will give. You're not the only one.